Welcome to the public morality. Though on the surface, Russia's invasion of Ukraine might appear to be a regional conflict, but with each passing day, the world becomes increasingly on a hair-trigger alert that events could change with disastrous ramifications. To begin our conversation about Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I'm joined by John Owen. Owen is Senior Fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture and the Miller Center for Public Affairs at the University of Virginia. Professor John Owen, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you, Byron. Very good to be with you. Mm -hmm. you know, I have um, three historical scenarios for you to consider to uh, jump off our conversation. Uh, if assuming Russia's invasion with uh, Ukraine ended today to Russia's advantage, which one of these three outcomes would be the most likely scenario given where we are right now, knowing that could change very quickly? The first scenario would be something akin to the 1938 Munich Agreement that permitted Germany uh, to annex the Sudetenland in Western Czechoslovakia. The second option would just be Germany invading Poland in 1939. And then the fourth option would be the 1940 uh, Vichy-type government that was established in France. Which one of those scenarios from, you know, advantage Russia do you, would you say is the most likely and why? Yeah, let's see. So you're, you're positing Russia suddenly wins, and I, I would say partly has to do with um, how where where their troops are. But let me let me say this is a great question. And a lot of us are kind of gaming this out and trying to figure out what Putin wants exactly. What would he be satisfied with? Um, setting aside what the Ukrainians would be satisfied with. Um, there's no overlap there right now. But in any case, to your three scenarios, yeah, the Sudetenland in 1938, that this is uh when, just for your listeners' benefit, when the, the that was a majority ethnically German occupied, uh, inhabited part of Czechoslovakia. And uh, so the Nazi party was pretty popular there already. And Hitler annexed it with the agreement of the British and the French. Uh, and of course, Hitler was not ultimately not satisfied. Later that year, he annexed all of uh, Czechoslovakia. So I hope that's not what Putin wants. But uh, and I think it's unlikely because that is the annexation of the rest of Ukraine. The Sudetenland analog for him would be something like the Donbass region, Luhansk, Donetsk, which have been undergoing a kind of civil war since 2014 with with uh, Russia-backed militias. So, and Russia apparently it's very hard to tell, Byron, but apparently Russia is still pretty popular in those places. They, they've even set up uh, supposedly independent people's republics. Um, so uh, would Putin could do that pretty easily. Would he be satisfied with that or would he want to do what Hitler did in 1938 later and then try to annex the rest of the country? That would be pretty difficult for him to do because <laughs> to his great surprise, there's a lot of patriotism in Ukraine all over the country, even in the eastern part. That has really surprised him. 
clearly he was caught off guard. He, you know, he might have thought he was walt walking into some kind of Sudetenland situation. Or let's think of Austria also in 1938 when when Nazi Germany annexed Austria. The German army just waltzed into there and took it, and it was uh, very popular. Um, you know, m- most Austrians, sadly, uh, were, were happy with that annexation. Not all, but but most were. Um, so I, I don't think, I think it's quite possible Putin could try to annex this Donbass region or most of it, the way Hitler annexed Sudetenland. I don't think he would try to annex the rest of the country. So your second, uh, your third was France. I'm sorry, what was your second scenario? I said Poland, but you you sort of answered it already when you talked about uh, Austria, which I think is actually a better example, just Germany invading, I said invading Poland, but actually I think Austria is a a, a better analogy. Yeah, so I think, again, I think that's what might've been what he thought, Putin thought he was doing. And he had reason for that, right? Uh, the annexation of Crimea, which was sovereign and still is actually legally sovereign Ukraine territory, was really easy for him. And he may have been misled into thinking, he may, he may have had these analogies in mind that you and I are talking about. Like, this is a pretty easy call, at least in eastern Ukraine. These people feel like Russians. They're, they're with us. They, they're not going to uh, get in our way. Uh, maybe the western part of Ukraine is going to be more trouble, but the eastern, you know, it, it didn't work out that way. Um, the, your third scenario, France, that's a very interesting one. That's a complicated one. So again, for the benefit of those of your listeners who don't know their history so well, uh, Germany, Nazi Germany conquered France very quickly in May and June, 1940, much more quickly than I think even the Germans expected. They understood that ruling the entire nation of France, a a large country, about, about the same size as Ukraine, actually. Um, with a with a large population, many of whom really were anti-German, uh, ruling that entire country directly would be difficult. Would take a lot of German manpower and money and so on, a lot of energy, while Germany was still fighting the Soviet Union on the Eastern Front. So Germany, actually, Germany wasn't fighting the Soviet Union yet, I should say, but in the spring of 1940. But anyway, the, the deal the Germans came up with is we will occupy and directly rule the northern half of France, roughly including Paris. And we will set up a sort of puppet government uh, headquartered in the, in the city of Vichy in southern France. So that's Vichy, France, which was ruled by uh, Marshal Pétain, the, uh, who regarded himself as a patriotic Frenchman, but was really in the pocket of, mostly in the pocket of Nazi Germany. So what that did for the, the Germans, to put it in really just cold-blooded terms was, it allowed them a measure of control over Southern France without burdening them with direct rule. And then they directly ruled Northern France, which was strategically more important. So would Putin want to do something like that? You know, I think he would. I, now, whether he could pull it off, whether he could find a Vichy-type government to rule Western Ukraine, I don't know. I mean, there, there, there would be people out there who would volunteer, I suppose. But I think a collaborationist government, pro-Russian, ruling Western Ukraine is a, a really difficult proposition for Russia. You would have 
a Ukrainian resistance that made the French resistance in World War II look like a picnic. Uh, I really, I really think that's the case. And also, the Ukrainian resistance in Western Ukraine would be uh, receiving certainly munitions, equipment from from NATO through Poland and other NATO countries. That's something that Nazi Germany didn't really have to worry about in southern France, in Vichy France during the war. So um, I guess what all this adds up to is Putin has bitten off more than he can chew in a way that Hitler really hadn't yet. Hitler was doing okay until he invaded the Soviet Union in the middle of 1941 and a few months later declared war on the United States. That was when he really overstepped. I think Putin has already overstepped because Ukraine is bigger and more resistant to Russia than he thought it would be. Now, to, to that extent, I'm going to switch over to uh, from Ukraine's perspective. Uh, how close do you think this is, uh, the conflict, is evolving into a war of attrition? I'm thinking Great Britain and America, uh, United States, Vietnam, the Soviet Union, Afghanistan. If this, if this goes, evolves into a war of attrition, that's definitely advantage Ukraine, right? Well, I, I think so. It, I think you're right. It is becoming a war of attrition. We don't really know because that kind of war can last years. And yeah, the historical analogs you mentioned are an example, right? Uh, so we might think the United States lost the Vietnam War, therefore the great power, all, or, or the Soviets lost in Afghanistan, the great power always loses the war of attrition. But Syria supplies a counterexample. You know, the Syrian government of Assad won a war of attrition that was quite horrible. And in fact, had Russian, as you know, had Russian intervention helping the Assad government. Uh, we did not intervene much at all in that one, the United States, uh, nor, nor other democracies. So, so to answer the first part of the question, yeah, it is becoming a war of attrition, again, because Ukrainian resistance is much greater than the Russians had anticipated. And the Russian logistical competence, that is to say their, their, their army, is uh, much weaker than they had thought or we had thought. Uh, you know, Western intelligence was saying that Russia can take the capital city of Kiev in 12 hours. I saw that before the war. Well, it's, um, what is it, 12 days and they haven't taken it yet and they're not that close. What they're doing now, as you know, is because the notorious 40-mile column of armored vehicles heading toward Kiev has been stalled for more than a week. They are using rocket attacks and artillery, heavy artillery, to attack these cities to, with horrendous effect, right? They are uh, killing civilians. Some, some of these rockets and artillery aren't that accurate, but it doesn't really matter because it looks like Russia's strategic goal now is to terrorize the Ukrainian population, to let refugees out of there, or at least some of them, and terrorize the remaining Ukrainians to the point where they say, enough, enough, forget Zelensky, we surrender to Russia. I, again, I don't, I think we're many years from that happening, but that seems to be uh, Russia's goal. I, I do think 
you're right about the war of attrition because Ukraine, the Ukrainian army is, is, is still standing and fighting hard. Ukrainian civilians have formed these militias. There are foreigners, including some Americans going to Ukraine to join these militias. They will have lots of weapons and ammunition, uh, partly supplied by us and, and NATO. Uh, and the spirit among these Ukrainians is just just remarkable. They are. Uh, it does remind you of Churchill and the British in in World War II, where Churchill was uh, the Britain in the summer of 1940 really thought that Germany was going to invade, and Churchill by that time was prime minister. And there's a quote from him that's it's really uh, gruesome, but it. it Talks, it speaks to this the seriousness of the moment. He said, apparently to a family member, you know, if, if a German comes to the door, remember, you can always take him with you. You can always take one with you. I think that's the thinking of um, millions of Ukrainians now. To, to that extent, on this war of attrition, from my perspective, I'd like to have you comment on this. I think the, the possibility of this war of attrition uh, I do think the economic sanctions play a big role in that because it reduces Putin's time because he won't have the resources to fund this war. Yeah, yeah this, is, this is really serious. The world has never seen economic sanctions of this magnitude. The, um, so much of the world is unified. It is the case that uh, Russia is still selling oil and gas on world markets, including to Europe. So uh, that's because prices are high. It's, it's Germany and, and other European countries, of course, need the energy. It's still winter. Russia needs the revenue. So this is a very odd situation where they're uh, close to being enemies, uh, Western Europe and Russia, but still doing business in this very important sector. There is, of course, talk of Europe ceasing to buy Russian oil and gas. That would be a big blow to Russia. Russia still has China, and I want to mention China in the background. The Chinese, it's pretty clear, did not want Putin to do this, but he did it anyway. At the start of the Olympics, you might remember, the Chinese and Russians issued a joint statement about how their, their friendship is unbreakable and so on. Putin took that to mean, ah, I can, I can attack Ukraine as soon as the Olympics are over, and that, that's what he did. But it's, it's clear the Chinese didn't want him to do that. Now, since he's done it, since he's invaded Ukraine and is fighting this terrible war, China has a dilemma. And so far, the dilemma is, do we back Russia or do we not back Russia? Do we press Russia? You know, Putin and Xi Jinping, the president of China, have met about three dozen times over the years. They know each other really well. So should Xi Jinping press Vladimir Putin to uh, a ceasefire and peace negotiations and some kind of settlement? Or should Xi Jinping just back Russia to the hilt? They're, the Chinese are ambivalent so far. Diplomatically, they are backing Russia with great force. They're saying this is war is terrible, of course, but this is America's fault. The United States is trying to rule the world and Russia has had enough and they're fighting back like any reasonable country would do. On the economic front, the financial front, they're not backing Russia so much. So Chinese banks have followed 
the, the international lead on sanctions. So they're, at least for the time being, not lending Russia money. China has a rudimentary financial system that could possibly be of some help to Russia in conducting international transactions, but it's there's not much to it. I'm told, I'm not a finance expert, but financial people say tell me it's not that far along. So China can't extend that much help to Russia. All this adds up to uh, support for the point you're making, Byron. Russian resources are getting scarce, even though they're still getting lots of energy from resources, uh, revenue from energy. Look at the gas pump. Look at gas prices here. They What are they um, pushing uh, three and a half dollars? And I think in California, seven and a half dollars. Yeah, because depending on where you live. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, depending on where you live. So this is a, when you see that, of course, it's bad for us, but it's really good for Putin. It means more money rolling in as long as he's able to sell on on global markets. Right. If Biden, the Biden administration succeeds, first of all, decides the United States is not going to buy any more from Russia and the Europeans stop buying from Russia. And that that, by the way, depends on, say, Saudi Arabia and even Venezuela stepping up and increasing production. Uh, then Russia is in a much tighter position and the war of attrition becomes a bad thing for them. They will then want to win it quickly to prevent it from becoming a slow war. And that's when we can unfortunately expect even more destructive uh, power being unleashed by Russia on Ukrainian cities. And fat, an effort to take the southern coast of Ukraine that borders the Black Sea uh, more rapidly. But we're not quite there yet. You, you mentioned China and you mentioned the economic end. Uh, might China also be looking at this, um, the world reaction in terms of how it might uh, pursue Taiwan? Yes, that has been a fear even before Russia attacked Ukraine. Lot, lots of us, and I, I watch China. I'm, I've been there three times and am uh, quite interested in and concerned about China's present and future actions in its own neighborhood and China's thinking about future global order. Yeah, the Chinese, uh, now, now the lesson, we have to ask what lesson the Chinese are drawing from this war, the Russian war in Ukraine. And on the one hand, Russia went ahead and boldly invaded. So you might think that's encouraging. And the United States and NATO have, have made it clear they're not, they're not going to deliberately fight a war against Russia in return. They, and that's because Russia has 4,500 nuclear warheads, right? That if U.S. or other NATO forces start firing at Russian troops or vice versa, we're, the world is in uncharted territory with these nuclear weapons. So the Chinese might be encouraged by that. You know, the Americans are railing and the Germans are railing against Russia, but they're not actually fighting directly. On the other hand, the Chinese are doubtless really impressed by the unity that Western and other countries, and this includes Japan, are showing with these, these economic sanctions on Russia. The swiftness, so to speak, uh, with which the West pulled together, the depth and breadth of these economic sanctions, the Chinese have got to be impressed by that. And so I'm thinking on balance, 
the Chinese are probably concluding that they should wait. If they had been, if she had been contemplating an actual attack on Taiwan, and there was speculation about that, you know, is he, is he not? There was some um, mischief by the Chinese uh, Air Force in near Taiwanese airspace last year. It seems that the rational thing for China to do now would be to wait. But I will say one other thing. In the long term, if I'm Xi Jinping, I'm looking at this Russian war in Ukraine, and I'm looking at the Western united response with these devastating economic sanctions. I'm thinking China, my country, needs to put itself in a position where it's invulnerable to these sanctions from the West. We, it looks like we, we, China, need to build an independent financial system. Uh, maybe we just need to have our own trading blocks. We need to be selling a lot less to the United States and Europe and more to Russia and countries along this Belt and Road Initiative. You know, China is investing about a trillion dollars in infrastructure uh, all over, mostly but not entirely Southern Hemisphere countries. And China in the long term could just say, okay, what we need to do in the long term is build an, a completely separate or a par partially separate international economy so that we can do what we want with Taiwan and Xinjiang and Hong Kong without worrying about these sanctions. Now, I'm speculating, but I'm, uh, I don't know if Xi Jinping is thinking that far ahead, but that would be, if he's really thinking strategically in the and I mean, next 10, 20 years, this is where his mind is probably going. Now, I, I want to come back, if we could, to, to NATO, because the Putin argument is that NATO has expanded its sphere of influence that has absorbed the Russian security belt, making it vulnerable. Is, is that a legitimate argument in your mind? Well, it's, it is legitimate if you get inside Vladimir Putin's head and if you realize where his interests lie. And by that, here's what I mean by that. Putin does not want democracies on Russia's doorstep. He has some already. You know, the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, they are small democracies, members of NATO and so on. Ukraine has been an unstable aspiring democracy for ever since its independence back in 1991. He doesn't, and Ukraine, as he keeps saying, has a special meaning and ties with Russia. You know, he regards it as part of Russia. But even if you don't buy that line, it does have, you know, linguistically, historically, close links with Russia, Tsarist Russia, and, and with the, so it was part of the Soviet Union. So why doesn't Putin, it, want a democracy on Russia's doorstep because Putin's regime is authoritarian. It, he regards the main threat to his rule in Russia as democracy. So pretend we're in a world where Russia is a liberal democracy. The president of Russia would need to worry about democracies on Russia's doorstep or on NATO advancing eastward, taking members you know, the Baltics, the old Warsaw Pact countries, even Ukraine. Not a problem for Russia because it's a democracy. It likes being around democracies. That's Democracies have this sort of 
a club, clubbish relationship with each other. They trade with each other. They exchange uh, uh, scientists and students and, and so on. Uh, they have they tend to have very close military and intelligence relationships and, and, and they become very interdependent and so on. That's not the Russia we have. The Russia we have is Vladimir Putin's Russia. So he actually has reason to fear the eastward advance of NATO. He's not crazy. In, now, he, may, he has shown some signs of being unstable lately. Uh, don't get me wrong. But insofar as his worry is NATO advancing toward the Russian border, because he cares so deeply about maintaining his own regime in Russia. Yeah, he's he's got a point, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. I, I, as I'm listening to your answer, I'm thinking, though, you know, his concern was certainly would have been Nikita Khrushchev's concern or Leonid Brezhnev's concern. But we're in an age of globalization where, I mean, we've seen some unprecedented strength. Uh, displayed in the interconnectedness of these Western countries that makes it increasingly more difficult for a lone wolf to be disruptive as, say, the old Soviet Union would have been in, in the 50s and 60s. So I'm wondering, is, is Putin's behavior part of maybe a bygone era? I think so. Now, he, he wants to prove us wrong when we say things like that, right? He wants to say this... Uh, Liberal democracy, it, maybe it's fine for the West, but it's not a universal doctrine or system of government. You know, it, it's um, and, and by the way, he he and his government and the Chinese have been talking about this for a long time. That liberal democracy has had its time. Its time is over. And, and the set international norms that liberal democracies promulgate and they're so proud of, you know, the European Union and the, you know, the fact that France and Germany are friends now. They used to be bitter enemies, mortal enemies are fine. That, that worked for a while and maybe it works in certain Western countries, but it's not, it's not the wave of the future. They, Russia and China and some other governments have been saying the wave of the future in the 21st century is what you could call authoritarian capitalism. And they point at the trouble, the turmoil that our own democracy in the United States has had in the last, let's say, five years or maybe more, but certainly five years as evidence that our system doesn't work. And therefore, the, our vision for global interdependence and uh, global markets uh, it is... Uh, it's a late 20th century, maybe early 21st century vision, but it's but it's over. I think you're right, though. I if I if I were a betting man, I would bet in the long term. I would continue to bet on constitutional or liberal democracy um, continuing to consolidate and and spread. Although the spread has definitely slowed and even halted in the last decade or so, but I think it's the most efficient system. It's the most innovative system. It's the most resilient system. I think the Russian uh, alternative model in particular is really dependent on, frankly, uh, agriculture and oil and gas, uh, fossil fuels. It's not a high-tech country. It doesn't have, you know, the prognosis for Russia just isn't that great. China is a different story. We're not here to talk about China, but China has is a more serious 
challenger to liberal democracy. But even there, the, the regime looks brittle. And so, so, yeah, to answer your question, yes, I think Putin is a throwback, but he has reason to think that he's not a throwback, that he's actually the man of the future. And he has, again, you can look at China and say, you know, China is growing faster than the United States most every year except one out of the last 30 years. That's where the future lies, authoritarian capitalism. I wonder, um, you mentioned that Putin um, has seemed unstable with some of his recent remarks. You can't take everything for granted what you what, what what's reported coming out of Russia, but Putin appears surprised by the extent uh, of the sanctions, even resorting to nuclear saber rattling, which is a real cause for concern. Um, are you worried that this conflict might devolve into something beyond anyone's control with disastrous implications? Yeah, that's that's such an important question. I am worried. I'm not panicked. And I'm not panicked because unless Putin has really uh, gone crazy, you know, he's an old KGB guy. He understands nu- what we call nuclear deterrence. That is to say, he understands he has 4,500 nuclear warheads. He's not afraid to brandish them. We have almost the same number. So this gets us back to the Cold War thinking about nuclear weapons, but it it's still valid if Putin knows that if he were to launch a nuclear attack on a NATO country, he seriously risks a U.S. or British or French. The British and French have nuclear weapons too, but probably U.S. retaliation on Russia, on the cities of Moscow and St. Petersburg. Why would he... So, so he, he because he can think ahead and say, oh, I, I better not attack the West, like even Poland or other NATO countries with... Um, in fact, I better not get in a war with them at all because it could escalate into a nuclear war and then Moscow and St. Petersburg are uh, doomed, right? That's how the peace was kept between the old Soviet Union and the United States. It's a kind of grisly calculus about mutually assured destruction. Putin, I'm sure, still gets that. So I don't think he would deliberately start an actual war with NATO for that reason. After all, he's a he, he's really intimidated by NATO. He doesn't want NATO coming up to his border any more than it already is. So why would he pick a fight with NATO? That said, history shows that wars can spread by accident. All right. So one way that can happen, there's been speculation, you may have seen, Byron, that Putin, if Putin becomes desperate enough, he could use what we call tactical or battlefield nuclear weapons in Ukraine thinking that, well, the NATO won't respond. NATO will be very upset, but they won't respond because Ukraine just is not a member of NATO. So I can do what I want in NATO. Well, if Putin were to do that, the world would be here again in uncharted territory. And it might be that the political pressure, especially in Europe, for NATO to respond and help Ukraine militarily might be overwhelming. We just don't know. The other, uh, this is, uh, I, I think, related. The war could also spread to include NATO, which would then bring up the possibility of a nuclear exchange. 
if when NATO continues to run equipment, munitions, artillery, ammunition into Ukraine from, say, Poland or other NATO countries to the West, the Russian military, so I'm, I'm thinking six months, a year from now, the Russian military could be so angry that it decides to pursue whoever's bringing these weapons in into Poland and start shooting. This would be in hot pursuit of NATO forces that are funneling weapons and so on into Ukraine. If that happens, this is an accident that probably wouldn't come from orders from Putin. It would just be on, on the battlefield, an angry uh, you know, group, brigade or division of, of Russian soldiers entering Poland and shooting. Then we have a war between Russia and NATO. And here again, world's in uncharted territory. All bets are off. Uh, so there are accidental ways to get to this nightmare scenario that, that you brought up. And, and you, you can bet that in the Pentagon and all these ministries of defense, they're thinking hard about that. And we hope that they're actually thinking about that in Moscow as well. Well, to, to, to what they might be thinking about in Moscow, authoritarian figures like Putin, and this goes back to my initial question with you, they're not prone to be honest brokers. Uh, remember the, uh, I'm thinking of uh, the, the, the uh, Germany-Soviet Union pact. We saw how long that lasted. Yeah. Authoritarian figures like Putin, it's never enough. So you can't trust that if, you, if even if there was a Vichy-like government or a Sudetenland agreement, that that's going to satisfy Putin. So I, I guess I'm wondering, ultimately, is this an issue that must be decided internally by those in Russia, just sort of like the ouster of Nikita Khrushchev for Lenin Brezhnev was an internal decision? Yeah. Yeah, th this is uh, another deep question. Let me say one thing about these authoritarian leaders. A lot of them are appeasable let me let me say so Hit, hitler we all think of hitler because he's the most the most horrific example nazi germany was this aggressive horrible country and just across the board in every way and our minds go there and frankly russia is behaving as you said a few minutes ago at the start of our interview in ways that are remarkably similar to the ways nazi germany was behaving in the late 1930s and it is quite unsettling we have most of us have thought that Putin is not as reckless as Hitler, and by which I mean, again, I said this a minute ago. Hitler's Hitler was on a roll and showing great prudence, you know, great aggression, but but of a prudent sort until the middle of 1941 when he invaded the Soviet Union. That was his first fatal error. The second, because the Soviets actually over in a grinded out war uh, broke the back of. Nazi Germany's armies and drove them back to Germany. The second big mistake that shows Hitler was unhinged was after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor in December 1941, Hitler declared war on the United States. He didn't have to do that. Well, ironically, that was the only treaty that Hitler actually honored, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, with Japan. It's true. Yeah. So, um, but you're right. He, so he's this unusual character. Other authoritarian, you know, Mussolini, same time, was um, more, knew his limits a bit more, and uh, though, though not enough. And the other authoritarian leaders around today, like Assad in Syria, um, these are guys who 
maybe they would like to rule their whole region, but they know they can't. So they just, they know when to stop. So a big question about Putin is, does he know when to stop? I will say this, now that he's invaded Ukraine and he's doubled down, we are asking, as you just asked a minute ago, is he more like Hitler than we thought? Not in the sense of perpetrating a Holocaust in lands he conquers, but does he actually understand that he's bitten off more than he can chew? Or is he like Hitler just going to keep going? So if that's so to bring it to your actual question, Byron, I can't help but think that Russian generals and oligarchs, these super wealthy billionaires, are thinking about this. They've liked Putin. Putin's been very good for the Russian economy for the last 20 years. He set it on its feet again. He has brought prestige back to Russia through its interventions in the Middle East, which were gruesome, but they show that Russia's a great, you know, a player again. He has enriched his buddies, his enemies. He has had killed off. Um, he's been very good to the Russian Orthodox Church. He's been very good to the Russian military. But they've got to be asking, hmm, maybe he's overstepped. Maybe he is a bit more like old Adolf Hitler than, than we thought. Maybe it's time for a new leader. That said, you can also bet that Putin has thought all of this through. Uh, we have a concept in political science, coup proofing. Certain dictators take all sorts of steps to make it make sure that they can't be assassinated or otherwise ousted from power. And Putin, again, being a KGB man from way back, knows how to do this. Um, so I think if you're a group of people in the high, high echelons of Russian, the Russian government or society, you might think we'd be better off with Putin, but you might also think it's awfully risky to try to engineer a coup. I'm not even sure whom I can trust to help me plan this coup, right? Uh, Putin has agents everywhere. He knows how this is done. He's, he's, he's done it himself, so he knows how to, right? So a coup, sure, I think it would probably not solve the problem that we're having now with Russia, but it would make it less severe. But it's, it's not the sort of thing you can count on, given Putin's own uh, craftiness and his ability to coup-proof his own regime. Professor John Owen, University of Virginia, sir, I want to thank you for uh, this sobering uh, conversation about where we are uh, with the Russian-Ukraine crisis. Thank you so much for joining me on the Public Morality, sir. My great pleasure, Byron. Thanks for what you're doing. Stay tuned as we continue our conversation on the Ukraine crisis with Professor Barbara Perry on the public morality. Welcome back. I'm joined now by Professor Barbara Perry. Professor Perry is Director of Presidential Studies at the University of Virginia's Miller Center, where she co-directs the Presidential Oral History Program. Professor Barbara Perry, welcome back to the public morality. Great to be with you, Byron. Assuming the accuracy of Mark Twain's observation, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Is there anything comparable in American presidential history that one could look to that's similar to what 
our role is with the Russian invasion of Ukraine? I think so. I think there are a number of historical parallels, although this is probably a unique time, but at least some parallels. So maybe some rhyming, maybe not all the words rhyme, but some of them will rhyme. And I think back particularly to the late 1930s, uh, the rise of Hitler in Europe, uh, the deal that was done with him in Munich, uh, which obviously was a poor deal, the so-called appeasement of Hitler, where he used some of the same arguments to take over the Sudetenland that Putin is using to take over or try to take over Ukraine. So I think that's one element. I think where this really applies to President Biden is the, the same kind of thing that Franklin Roosevelt faced in that his hands were tied by neutrality. That is, the American people had been through World War I. They didn't want to get into another land war in Europe. Uh, he was His hands were tied in the Spanish Civil War where Hitler and Mussolini were testing out what they would use uh, in, in terms of weaponry and war against citizenry in Europe. Uh, and so Franklin Roosevelt had to bide his time, come up with creative plans like the Lend-Lease program to give weaponry to uh, Britain to try to fight off the, uh, the Germans in the, uh, the war against Britain. Uh, so I think that there are some very similar parallels, both in terms of having the president's hands tied, but also the politics at home and what he's having to deal with domestically. Well, on that note, when President George H.W. Bush organized global support in the Gulf War in the early 90s, the United States standing in the world was unquestioned having come out of a tenure where the previous presidential administration questioned the relevance of NATO, how might that impact uh, President Biden's role in terms of handling this crisis? I think that's a really good point that you're raising, uh, but I think the, that's the bad news. The good news is that I think in the year plus, Joe Biden has been in office, and particularly given his long experience uh, as vice president and knowing a lot of leaders around the world and having connected with them and been in on all of the decisions that were made in the foreign and defense policy realm during his eight years as vice president, then his almost 30 years in the Senate where he was chair of the Foreign Relations Committee. So all of his experience there, and given the fact that his son uh, was not only in the army, but was uh, in, in a wartime combat situation, I think Joe Biden not only has a lot of experience to call on, but a lot of relationships around the world that he has built in more than three decades in uh, public life, but also in this year plus that he's been in office. And so I think one of the high marks that he's getting so far uh, is for having re rebuilt uh, those alliances, rebuilt our connection with NATO. And, and I think we're getting the benefits of that by showing that so many of the members of NATO are supporting us and our approach to Putin at this point. Now, speaking of uh, Vladimir Putin, the, the history uh, of authoritarian figures is the tendency to view compromise concessions as weakness, which emboldens further action. Assuming momentarily that, 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 that Vladimir Putin falls into that tradition, are we ultimately talking about a zero-sum game in Ukraine? Oh, I think that, yes, that if 
I, I, I have to say, I worry about this. If we would try to engage in compromise with him, I have to go back to Munich. And by the way, there's an excellent new movie on, I think it's on Netflix, um, with Jeremy Irons playing the uh, Neville Chamberlain role that really shows you how we were trying as, as the Western world was trying to deal with Hitler at that point uh, and that it didn't work uh, because appeasing him or compromising with him only emboldened him and showed weakness on the part of Britain uh, and, uh, and France. Uh, and so I, I think that we do have to be worried about that for Putin so that I think we have to have as much a show of strength as we can without igniting World War III. Well to, well, to that extent, I, I don't want to sound alarmist, so you, you can temper it down, but um, could that lead to a potential brinksmanship that we haven't seen since, what, 1962? Yes, I'm glad that you raised that, because I think we are there. In fact, I was listening to, I believe it was Admiral Stavridis, who was the Supreme Allied Commander and Head of NATO, uh, and is going to be speaking, by the way, at the Miller Center here at UVA, uh, in a couple of weeks on the issue of nuclear weaponry, which we thought was a more general subject until it became uh, a Cuban Missile Crisis situation. But he, as, as recently as this past week, and maybe even the week before, was saying, I'm seeing this, you know, people are talking about this being 1939 in Europe. He said, I've, I'm sorry to tell you, I see this as 1962 and the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I tell you, Byron, what really worries me is that I don't think Vladimir Putin is as rational as Nikita Khrushchev was. So likewise, I hate to sound alarmist, but those are my historical points to draw on. Well, to, I mean, to that extent, how much does uh, former President Donald Trump's opposition to NATO play a role in your mind, at least emboldening Putin to believe that he could do this uh, in the invasion of Ukraine? I am sorry to say, but I think that is one of the lasting effects, at least again, up until Joe Biden had to recreate and re-strengthen those bonds of NATO and unity among the NATO nations. I think we went through not only four years of a Trump administration in which he obviously spoke out loud about wanting to get out of NATO and, and thinking that NATO was, was enfeebled and was no good, but also we had to put up with the year prior to that of his campaigning on this America first isolationist view of the world. And I have to ask you, what did isolationism do for the United States and the world between the two world wars? It only led to World War II. So we're hoping that because this was a relatively small period of time in the great sweep of history, four to five years of Donald Trump and isolationism and America firstism. Uh, but he was, I would say he was the equivalent of Charles Lindbergh, who in the 1930s uh, was the you know, pro-Nazi America first man uh, who really caused lots of difficulties for the United States that I think emboldened Hitler, Mussolini, and on the opposite side of the globe, the Japanese empire. Finally, given what the inconsistency we see coming out of Russia in the form of um, Vladimir Putin. Talk about the tenuous road that NATO has to tread in terms of direct aid and non-direct aid and how close that could uh, come from Putin's perspective of being seen as an act of aggression. I mean, how, how tenuous is that road right now? 
Very. Uh, and I would recommend everyone, I'm just reading Bob Gates, our former Secretary of Defense under both uh, Obama and Bush 43, his most recent memoir called Duty. And I'm just reading last night uh, whether we should have had a no-fly zone for Libya when the Arab Spring happened. And we decided to do that. But Secretary Gates was very concerned. What could that lead to? And that's what we're facing right now. That's what the Ukrainians are calling for us to do. Some in, in NATO may be calling us to do that. And that is the next step would be a no-fly zone to try to protect the Ukrainians, give them some literal air cover uh, and, and sort of protect them from this uh, ongoing assault and invasion. And that's the tenuous road that once you step over that line, you not only are committing our, our air corps, you're committing our airmen, you are committing our money, you are committing our treasure of both blood and money. And so I, I, I want to help the Ukrainians, but I think that's the tenuous line that uh, Joe Biden and the NATO allies are having to walk right now. Professor Barbara Perry, University of Virginia, thank you so much uh, for, for lending us some of your time and expertise on the public morality. Much appreciated. Good to have you back on. Always my pleasure and honor to work with you. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Rally on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click Open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Public Rally at their studios. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. <laughs>